0: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When we first started working on this episode, there was one question that plagued us from the start. But we didn't have an answer, So we brushed it aside, dove headlong into a lot of research, set up interviews with two veteran foreign correspondents who you'll be hearing from later, the Times' Catherine Philp, who spoke to us from Keith, and the Sunday Times' chief foreign correspondent, Christina Lamb. Both reporters had incredible stories to tell us, and both were moved by those stories in a way that you don't often hear. And yet that one difficult, nagging question never went away. It roved in the back of our minds, all through the recordings, during the editing process, and to be honest, it still hangs there now. How do we get you to listen to this? Because today, we're talking about how rape is used as a weapon of war and how it's being used in Ukraine. I know, it doesn't sound like an easy lesson. And it isn't, but it is such an important one. For years, when we talked about wars, we rarely talked about the attacks on women. Because it was easier to look away. But we can't let these atrocities continue in the shadows. Rape as a weapon of war is not new. But our understanding of it, our intolerance of it, well, that part might be changing. And that's why we really want you to hear this episode. And I just want to add, these aren't just stories of misery. Behind every report of rape is a story of incredible courage. And every time the world rises up and condemns these acts it represents a little bit of progress. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the weapon of war we don't want to talk about.
1: My name is Catherine Fulp. I'm a correspondent for The Times and I'm currently in Kiev, which I returned to about two weeks ago, having been here at the start of the war.
0: And Catherine, just tell us a bit about what you've seen in the last couple of weeks.
1: I suppose what I've seen, like when I was previously here, there was a lot, really it was about the defence of these areas. In the last couple of weeks, it's become about the toll that the Russian invasion and occupation of some of these places and the fighting over them has taken mainly on the civilian people. Your
0: reporting has been incredibly powerful at cataloguing some of those horrors, some of the things you've seen as the Russians have left. Tell us in particular about the story of Natalia
1: I mean, firstly, I will say her name is not Natalia. She didn't want to give her a real name. I think that's understandable when you hear her story. Natalia moved to a a place called Brovery, and a lot of people moved to these places to have a quiet life. And, you know, even though spring hasn't come yet, it's really beautiful around Kiev, the thick pine forests and birch forests. I can just see that when spring comes, it would be such an idyllic place to live. She described it to me that her husband had designed every last thing about their home. They loved it so much, and it was all built of like natural stone and natural woods, because they wanted to be at one with nature. And they they even said to me, um, they wouldn't cut down a tree in the forest even for Christmas. They had the same potted tree that they would reuse every year.
0: For Natalia and her family, they have found the perfect place to live. What was the first sign that war had suddenly arrived on their doorstep?
1: I mean, obviously they were aware of the invasion. It, it's odd because I didn't question her intently over why she didn't leave. A lot of people, especially in those kind of places, felt the war had nothing to do with them and it would pass them by. But what they heard was that this Russian armour column had arrived in their area, you know, the neighbours pass it on. And they actually told me that they went down and to the road and kind of stood out there, like, thinking that the soldiers would not linger and just wanted to say, hi, we're civilians, like, leave us alone. And I I know this is very hard for us to understand after we've heard about these atrocities, but remember that the Russians were their neighbours and they're not people that they knew to be afraid of in this, necessarily in this way. Not in these areas, anyway. Obviously, there was a war in in the Southeast. So they wanted to say essentially we're not a threat, but they came across no one. And so they retreated to their house and they hung a white sheet on their gate as so many people did to show that they weren't a threat.
0: And then what what happened?
1: Um, A day after they'd first heard about the Russians being there, they heard this sound and a gunshot and they came out into their yard and found that one of their dogs had been shot, and there were Russian soldiers there. And the soldiers came in, and they're like, oh, sorry about your dog. And it appeared that they were looking for places to stay in. So I think what happened in that case was that they saw this house, thought they would move in, just get rid of the dogs, they're a threat, and then came across this family still living there and retreated. But Natalia said they they weren't, like, horrendously aggressive. They just were like looking for a place and they retreated. When they came back, she said that one of them who introduced himself as Mikhail Romanov had been drinking. And that's when things got nasty.
0: What happened?
1: They came back on a quad bike they'd stolen from a neighboring property and they came back looking for fuel. So they siphoned off fuel from one of the cars. They shot up one of the cars. They had two cars. They shot up one of the cars. They wanted to take one of the cars. They found a camouflage jacket, which is like very common in this part of the world for people just to wear and and accused her husband Mm. of being a Nazi. All of this went on. Um, They then left. And then later came back. And that time that they came back, they heard the gate go again. They were obviously extremely frightened at this point by what was going on, but there was a lot of military action in the town. Their phones weren't working, and it wasn't really viable to uh, try and escape. And obviously, by this point, their cars had been destroyed. Um, so they heard this noise, and her husband went out to see what was happening at the gate. She heard a gunshot, and the next thing she remembers is the men were suddenly in her house, and she said what what happened to my husband?" and she looked outside and he was he was lying dead what what did she what did she do so i I think it's safe to say that she was in shock at this point I mean this is a extraordinary mm. sequence of events very rapidly they ordered her to take her clothes off uh and and they raped her her son was in the boiler room which because they didn't have like a full-scale basement where people shelter usually in their homes from shelling and stuff that's where his son was and she'd been in there
0: how how old is her son
1: he's four years old So uh, she was calling to him to stay exactly where he was um, whilst they did what they did. And they left. She went into the room. He was so frightened, she said that he couldn't really move. Within, she thinks, 20 minutes, they returned. Um, It happened again. They said that they killed her husband because he was a Nazi. By the time they returned for the third time, they were so drunk um, that she was able to kind of pacify them. They sat down in chairs and ultimately fell asleep, at which point she went to retrieve her son. When they got out of the house, she saw the body of her husband and she leant down to check him and she said that, His wrist was cold. She checked his wrist. It was cold. And her son said, if we don't leave, will we get shot like this man did? And she realised at that point he didn't know it was her father because it was all dark. The electricity was off. He just saw a shape on the ground and knew it was a a man who'd been shot.
0: Natalia and her son fled across the fields to a neighbour's house, eventually making it to Brovery, and then to Western Ukraine, where her husband's sister had been evacuated. It was her sister-in-law who persuaded
1: Natalia to report her rape to the police. As a result, it is the first case that has been lodged with the Ukrainian prosecutor general as a criminal investigation to the level of a war crime
0: from what you've seen, you know, is this emerging as something quite systematic? Is, is, is Natalia's case a one-off or is this something I mean, that's It's happening? definitely not
1: a one-off. It's definitely happening. You know, I've had a lot of responses of people going, yeah, well, rape always happens in war. Well, yeah, get the point and then miss it because it does always happen in war. That's the thing. Natalia's horrible story is is not a one-off in the wider world of war. We shouldn't accept that, that this is just something that happens. It is a crime of war. It mm. is a crime against civilians. It's disgusting. It's disgraceful. I don't, I don't have words for it, but there is no doubt it is a weapon. Catherine, for Natalia, I mean... Um
0: how is she now? And how is her son?
1: I mean, that's an open question. How is anyone after that? She is getting help. She's getting counselling. Um, her son, to my knowledge, does does not know. She certainly hadn't told him. By the last time I spoke to her, some of the most heartbreaking parts of her story were when she described that she's that she would take her son to a playground in the place where they are sheltering and he would tell the other children that his favorite dog was killed but that they had to leave their home because of the war but papa had to stay behind and he can understand that papa had to stay behind because lots of fathers have had to stay behind but she said that you know they go to the shops and she he says let's get Um, a donut for Papa. He, he, He hasn't... He doesn't know. He doesn't know that, you know, that Papa's not coming back. It's heartbreaking. It is.
0: In a moment, we'll hear from the Sunday Times Chief Foreign Correspondent, Christina Lamb, ...on the long history of rape as a weapon of war... ...and a case in 1998
2: that began to change things. That was the very first time that war rape... ...as an international war crime was successfully convicted. But first...
1: I'm Matthew Campbell, Foreign Features Editor at The Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm David Badil. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there.
2: I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do,
1: sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I've done a lot of research into rape being used in war and it's very hard to find a single conflict where it hasn't happened. That's Christina Lamb, Chief Foreign Correspondent for the Sunday Times. In her
0: book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefields, she chronicles the horrors faced by women in war, going all the way back to the days of antiquity until now.
2: Of course, the Russians have rather notoriously done this in the past, so most famously during the liberation of Berlin at the end of the Second World War when as many as two million women in Germany were raped by Russian soldiers. Very few women really spoke about it at the time and some women committed suicide actually rather than live with it. That is one of the
0: horrors of this. It is often associated with shame. We don't talk about it. Enough in some wars. When did you become aware of it as something that was happening more and more?
2: So as a foreign correspondent mostly covering conflict, I've always really focused on what happens to women in war and how they kind of keep life together during war. And they're the ones that sort of feed and educate, protect the children and shelter them and the elderly. But there is also this dark side, which is the use of rape and sexual violence. And I think the first time I really became aware of it being used on a large scale was in 2014, 2015, when the Yazidis were escaping Iraq after the Islamic State ISIS fighters had gone into their villages and taken thousands of them, abducted them, And kept them as sex slaves and traded them, actually. I mean, I met one girl who told me she'd been sold 12 times between different ISIS fighters and that she felt like a goat. So this was something really horrendous. When you first started as
0: a foreign correspondent, how were women in war zones being
2: reported on? I mean, to be honest, not much. When I started, there were very few female war correspondents. And those of us that were there probably felt like we had to be even more macho than the men. (laughs) So, you know, it was very much the focus on the fighting. But I was always very interested in, I think, because I never set out to be a war correspondent. It was kind of by accident. I was much more interested in how you live in a country where all hell's breaking loose around you. Because in all of these places, these wars have been going on for a long while. And... Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, but, but millions of people still live there and actually go to work and get married and have children. And so that fascinates me much more than the actual fighting, I have to say. And there is that, there is the, the whole
0: experience of just life within a war zone. In terms of, you know, the darker underbelly of it, the, the sexual violence that we keep seeing, I mean, in a way, it, it's not new. It does feel like it sort of goes back for as long as... We've Got Recorded History. Tell us a bit about when you are writing your book, what were some of the earliest cases you came across?
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you look at the very first written history, which is by Herodotus, it starts with the abduction of women by the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Trojans capturing Helen. So you go back to ancient Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, there was always rape in war. But often that is because of the sort of general breakdown of rules of society and the opportunity that there is and maybe the adrenaline of war rather than actually a systematic weapon, which is what I think has happened in recent years where people have been ordered to to rape. But whichever case it isn't right, the fact that this is still happening in 2022, I think is completely shocking.
0: Clearly, it is something that's happened forever, but you're right, it feels like something has changed. It does seem more systematic, more recently. Take us back to 1998, because I suppose that feels like a a, a sort of a seminal moment in this awful history of sexual violence in war, in terms of what was happening in Rwanda.
2: So, I mean, the 90s are interesting, because for a lot of people, that's the first time that people became aware of sexual violence in war because of Bosnia, really. Mm. There are echoes of that now, of people saying, um, how could this possibly happen in Europe? There were rape camps set up and huge numbers of women were raped.
0: Ramza Muhic was raped here at the Vilina Vlas hotel. Other survivors say it was used as a rape camp. One alleged as many as 200 women suffered, though exact numbers may never be known.
2: Mostly Bosnian women by Serbian fighters, but also some vice versa and some Croatians as well. People vowed never again. But around the same time, you had the genocide in Rwanda in 94, where around a million people, 800,000 to a million people thought to have been killed in a hundred days. Each time in April I feel very anxious and sick because I remember the genocide. It's like a film in front of me because I can remember very well. They said, those we have
1: killed will serve as a mattress for our dead president. You will be the blanket. Instead of me staying alone, I thought, let them kill me, I have no reason to stay alive.
2: what came out later on was also tens of thousands of women, or maybe hundreds of thousands of women, were raped. So in both Bosnia and Rwanda, international tribunals were set up. And the International Tribunal for Rwanda, which was in Arusha in Tanzania, started, its first case was a man called jean paul Akayesu, who was mayor of a small city called Taba, not far from the capital, Kigali. He was accused of torture and genocide, various things, but not rape. But when people went to testify, some of the women testifying started talking about rape, and one woman in particular started saying, "And and then we were taken into the town hall and raped." The three international judges, two of which were male. One of the men literally said, Well, we're not interested in that, like moving on. Um, wow. Fortunately, there was also a female judge, Navi Pile, from South Africa. And she said, Hang on a minute, this woman has come all the way here. no benefit to herself to tell her story, let's at least hear it properly. So she asked about the rape and the woman said, well, there was a lot of rape, lots of people were being raped. And so when they started to hear this, they realised that actually this was a major issue And so the the case was stopped and it was reframed, including the charges of of sexual violence. And he was convicted in 1998 of a number of counts, including the sexual violence. And that was the very first time that war rape as an international war crime was successfully convicted. I mean, it's so shocking that to begin that process of having an
0: international tribunal looking at, at, at the issue. It wasn't even on the charge sheet. No.
2: There were five particular women, brave women, who literally risked their lives to go testify because, of course, a lot of people didn't want them to testify. When they finally got the verdict, they told me they were so happy they danced and they thought this is going to change everything, that this won't happen to other women in the future. So they feel very angry and upset to see that it not only is still happening, but it seems to be happening more and more. Every woman I spoke to who'd been through this told me that what they most wanted was justice. But at the moment, there is no doubt that accountability is the exception, not the rule. So people carrying out these heinous things don't ever think anything's going to happen to them. They also do it because, unfortunately, it's very effective if you want to clear an area, humiliate the population, your enemy, drive them out of a place that you can take it over. Raping the women and girls is a really effective way of doing that. And it's also very cheap. One militia said to me it's cheaper than a Kalashnikov bullet. But I think there's also, and that may be the reason here in Ukraine, that there's, it, it can be revenge. So the, the Russians that raped German women at the end of the war, that was very much revenge for what had happened to the, the Soviets. And also could be anger, like we've seen that things haven't gone well for the Russian forces in Ukraine. So taking out their frustration on the local women. And, you, you know, sadly, The opportunity is there. Hmm. Why is it so hard to prosecute these cases? Why have we had so few prosecutions so far? It makes me very angry because the United Nations, every member nation, including Russia, passed a resolution 1325, more than 20 years ago, recognising the particular dangers to women in war of sexual violence or committing to do something about it. In that time it's my conviction that the numbers have increased enormously, far from reducing. And the International Criminal Court, which was set up Around the same time, to prosecute international crimes, war crimes, including this, has only successfully convicted one person in all that time. So I'm afraid it's lack of international will. Of course, it's difficult to prosecute. It's difficult prosecuting rape. In the UK, we have an abysmal record for numbers of prosecutions. I think 2% of reports led to charges last year. So it is very hard, but, you know, it needs people to stop just expressing outrage and passing resolutions and actually do something about it. It's not going to happen by accident.
0: Are, are there any rays of light on the horizon? Do you see any hope for, for this getting better?
2: Well, there are some bright spots. In, the, in recent years, there have been some successes in domestic courts, actually, in places like Guatemala and Chad, A number of countries have managed to bring prosecutions for rape successfully. But in each case, the women who have gone through this terrible ordeal have had to testify over and over again, which is completely wrong. Um, have had to be very determined and courageous. And every case I found that had been successfully prosecuted had a woman prosecutor, a woman judge. So it seems to me, just as that first case in Rwanda that was successful with Navi Pile, that having women on the bench makes an enormous difference. And with Ukraine in particular, you know, we know that Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has talked about
0: rape as a weapon of war being a red line for Britain.
2: We're all appalled by the scenes in Butcher, uh, the butchery, the clear evidence of sexual crime. It's very clear that war crimes have taken place. What I want to be very clear about is the UK is taking the maximum approach. As far as we're concerned, nothing is off the table.
0: I mean, what do you make of that?
2: Well, I think that's good if it it is a red line that actually something is done about. As I said, it's no good just talking about it. Britain has had a sort of leading role on this in William Hague when he was Foreign Secretary Back in 2012, 2013 started to become very interested in this issue because he had an advisor who came from Bosnia and so he met some of the survivors and he and Angelina Jolie famously held an international conference here in 2014 to try and raise the profile of
1: this. For the British government... And for Angelina, and for me personally, this summit is not the end of the road for our work. It is in many ways just the beginning.
0: It is a myth that rape is an inevitable part of conflict. This evil will continue ruining the lives of millions of people unless we make this summit a turning point. And we can.
2: He said to me, every meeting he had, every bilateral, he raised this issue. And his counterparts from different countries would say to him, why are you talking about this? This is a woman's issue. And he would say, no, you, actually, men and 99% of the problem, this is a male issue. And also, it's something that affects all of us. It's a national security issue. So yeah, I do think it needs to stop being seen as a woman's issue. It needs some international leadership to actually say this is unacceptable that in 2022 that this is still happening. We're talking about Ukraine. At the moment, it's happening in the Tigray region of Ethiopia on an enormous scale. It's happening in detention centers in Belarus among women protesters. It's happening in migrant detention centers in Libya. It's happening among the Uyghurs that are being held in camps in Xinjiang province. is a very widespread thing. There was a a landmark prosecution last year, last November, in Germany, where they used the principle of universal jurisdiction, which means that anything that's a a war crime could be prosecuted in any country. It doesn't have to be in, in the country that it took place. So they, German courts, actually successfully prosecuted an Iraqi who had kept a Yazidi woman as a sex slave and her five-year-old daughter. So he was prosecuted actually for the murder of the five-year-old daughter who sighed in the hot sun and died. So that is an example of how courts in different countries can prosecute. So the UK, for example, could prosecute something that happened elsewhere because it was seen as a, a universal crime. My One hope from what we're seeing in Ukraine, horrific, is is that actually this is the first time pretty much where we're getting these reports in real time while it's happening. We're not getting it afterwards, after the, the war. With Russian troops retreating from areas around the capital that they
0: used to control, Ukrainian forces are moving in and are uncovering more and more stories of
2: violence used against the local women, in particular of soldiers using rape as a weapon of war. And people are horrified, rightly, and talking about it. So I'm hoping that people will actually this time do something about it. It's slightly cooling when people say, oh, my God, this is awful. How could this be happening And you actually like, well, this has been happening in a lot of places for a, a long time. But anything that makes people more aware of it, I think, is positive. And I hope that the world stops turning a blind eye. And frankly, the media. The media has not covered these issues the way that they should have done in the past.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, diplomatic correspondent for The Times, Catherine Philp, and chief foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times, Christina Lam. You can find all of their work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, the executive producer, is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen